Chapter 8, Bars and Stripes Sam and Elder Coleman arrived at the mission home late that evening and spent the night there. The next morning, Sam was called into the office to speak with President Carlson. Elder Mahoney, my boy, how are you? How did you like Pretoria? President, I was transferred three days before a baptism. I love Pretoria, and I'm devastated about missing their baptism. I could have spent the rest of my mission there and done a wonderful work. President Carlson frowned and said, I'm sorry, but this transfer was urgent. I have to. I have had to send a missionary home and needed to a strong elder to replace him. The Lord needed you in Germiston more than your investigators needed you at their baptism. Sam considered this and nodded. He was willing to go anywhere, but it sure helped to understand why. What should I know about where I'm going? Your new companion, Elder Beesler, is a good missionary, but he's a bad. He's had bad examples. He and his last companion, the elder I just sent home, got into some trouble. Bad trouble. Elder Beesler was only partly involved, but he is on a short leash. I need someone I can trust to not be sucked into his ways. I have to send you as a junior companion because he's already a senior. So you can see why I needed you. I trust you to do what is right no matter what, Sam. Sam hesitated. It doesn't sound easy. I don't... I just want to do missionary work. I don't want to have to fight my companion to get it done. It shouldn't be that way. No, it shouldn't. But sometimes the reality of things isn't as perfect as our image of them. I know this is, will be difficult, but after much prayer and fasting, I'm confident you are the right one for the assignment. If you can't influence Elder Beesler, I'm afraid he will have to be sent home too. It's a tragedy I hope to avoid. Will you accept the call? Sam signed, sighed resignedly. Accept? Do I have a choice? Don't answer that. I don't want to know. I'll do as you say, President. I hope I don't let you down. President Carlson smiled. He stood up behind a big, ornate desk. I appreciate your faithfulness, he said, and added, There's something else I wish to discuss with you. I have had many reports regarding you. It seems you have a hard time sticking with the memorized discussions in spite of our instructions to do so. Sam had no idea this was coming and was dumbfounded. He started to reply, but decided that there was no point in defending his position. Instead, he simply said, It's true, I do deviate sometimes when I feel that an investigator needs to hear something different. I don't know what else to do but follow the spirit. And how do your investigators feel about this? How do they respond? Well, when I say things the Holy Spirit wants me to say, it always works out well. Sometimes he wants me to hear the discussion, wants them to hear the discussions, and sometimes he doesn't. And how can you tell the difference? President Carlson asked as he sat down on the edge of his desk. I listen. When I'm in tune, I just listen, and then the peace comes. Once I know what to do, I'm given the courage to do it. I see. President Carlson stood and walked to the bookshelves that covered three, three walls of the office. He opened a leaded glass door and motioned to the books inside. I love books. You may not know that I have a law degree and have read extensively on almost every subject you can ima uh, name, and some you couldn't name, I imagine. Sam stared at him, not seeing the connection. President Carlson continued, When I first came into this office and saw all these books, I spent days reading titles and marveling at the value of what's sitting on these shelves. Almost every book in this room is priceless. I couldn't afford more than two or three of them and if I sold everything I own. It's almost unbelievable to see such a marvelous collection in one room, yet I imagine few people who enter this room recognize their worth. He pulled a book from the shelf. It was bound in rich letter and had gold lettering on the side. This is a first edition copy of Charles Dickinson's Oliver Twist. He opened the book and tipped it so Sam could see the signature inside. It's signed by Dickens. It's exceedingly rare and fantastically valuable. He slid the back door... Uh, no. <laughs> he slid the book back into place and closed the door. Yet, it is an eternal sense. It's worthless. It has almost no redeeming value. He picked up a paperback copy of the Book of Mormon from his desk. This book sells for $2 and is worthless by worldly standards, yet it has been an instrument of bringing millions of souls to Christ. Its value is impossible to overstate. It's the most perfect book ever written, yet it is not a part of the collection of valuable books. I have purchased a leather-bound edition of the Book of Mormon, and when I leave, it will be part of this collection. If I could, I would get Mormon or Moroni to sign it. The difference between these priceless books and this perfect one is that the Book of Mormon was written under the influence of the Holy Ghost. Again, he sat on the corner of his desk. Missionaries are like these books. They are all of great worth and precious to the Lord. Even that elder I sent home today is precious. Yet some missionaries are not inspired, and to the extent that they are not, their value is not as great in missionary work. But my earlier comments, you may have thought I was upset by your deviating from the memorized discussions. Sam nodded. I just wanted to ascertain that your deviations were being inspired by the Holy Spirit. I'm comfortable that they are. 
He leaned closer to Sam and lowered his voice. What I'm going to tell you now, you must keep to yourself, because others would not understand what I'm going to say. The memorized lesson plans are inspired, but they are not a substitute for inspiration. We have them to guide us until the Holy Spirit chooses to take over. When that happens, we teach by the Spirit. Until it happens, we teach by the book. Unfortunately, some elders never reach beyond the book. This is my instruction to you, just to you. It's not instruction for the entire mission, and I urge you to accept it as such. You have my full and complete approval to teach whatever the Spirit directs, as long as it really is the Spirit. Just be certain that you are responding to the Spirit. If you do, all will be well, and you will serve a great mission for the Lord. President Sam said as soon as it became obvious that President Carlson had finished, I'm relieved. I promise I'll, I'll make every effort to ensure that everything I say is under the direction of the Holy Spirit. You have no idea how relieved I am to know that what I knew was right is truly acceptable to you and the Lord. It causes my heart to rejoice. President Carlson placed a loving hand on Sam's shoulder, and it causes my soul to rejoice to have such a faithful young man serving with me in this great work. God bless you, Elder, he said. <clears throat> as he stood, they shook hands and then embraced. Not many minutes later, Sam met Elder Beesler, and they began the long drive to Germiston. While Sam was a large individual, Elder Beesler was even larger. He was the first missionary Sam had seen that could twist him into a pretzel. What caused Sam even greater wonder was that he was sure Elder Beesler would enjoy doing it. Elder Mahoy, his new companion, began shortly after he had begun to drive. I have to admit that today has been a shock. When President Carlson called me into the mission home, I thought he was going to make me a district leader out in Germiston. Now I find out I'm in trouble because my companion was sent home. Well, all I did was follow my senior companion, just like I was supposed to. When my companion was going to bed with that girl, I just sat in the front room like a good soldier. I kept my nose clean, and I thought President Carlson was going to make me a district leader. What good did it do me? Now I am in disrepute, and I'll never be a DL. All I wanted was a chance to show everyone that I could be as good a DL as one of you Americans. You guys come over here so smug and self-righteous, thinking you know everything. Well, we South Africans should be the district leaders and zone leaders, and now it's not going to happen. Tell me, how many people have you baptized, Elder? He didn't pause for Sam to answer. Even had Sam... Even had Sam been willing to answer such a brash question. Well, I've baptized twelve, Elder Beesler continued. Twelve people have come into the church because of me, and what do I get for it? I'm accused of being lazy, and I'll never make mission leadership. Now I don't even want to finish my, this miserable mission, and here you are to dog me and make sure I don't do anything wrong. He paused for a moment, but Sam didn't interrupt the silence. I want you to know that I hate your guts, and nothing you do is going to change me. If President Carlson hadn't lied to me, I would have felt differently. But nothing is going to stop me from enjoying the rest of my mission. I'm going to be a missionary and not do anything to be sent home, but you can bet that I'm not going to be kissing up to President Carlson, and certainly not you. You keep your holier-than-thou baloney to yourself. Sam's head was swimming. Elder Beesler sneered at him and jammed his foot onto the accelerator. They zipped past the other cars and swerved dangerously into oncoming traffic. Elder Beesler made an obvious show of getting within inches of cars he was passing so that the other motorists would jerk away from them. Each time he did, Beesler gave Sam a glaring, I dare you to say something look. Not many minutes later, flashing lights appeared behind them and a police officer pulled them over. Elder Beesler swore in Afrikaans, and he pulled over but spoke calmly and rapidly to the policeman in Afrikaans, mentioning his name and Sam several times. Sam had difficulty following the conversation. The following morning, they went to court and waited and waited. The courtroom was a large theater-like room with a judge, prosecutors, and attorneys on a low stage in front of a stair-step seats. The judge sat behind a raised pulpit where he could look down on everyone in his court. He wore an elaborate black robe. It reminded Sam of an old-time courtroom in England. The only thing that was missing was the white powdered wig. The prosecuting attorney wore a similar... No, a simple black robe, but seemed to have great authority in court. He directed everything, telling people what they could say or do. He often became belligerent or insulting, and would occasionally turn to the judge and make a sarcastic observation about the witness. The judge seemed to have almost no control over what occurred in the courtroom except to render judgment after evidence had been laid out. At times, the prosecutor appeared to give legal advice to the person on trial, even making suggestions on what to do. It was entirely different from the Perry Mason movie Sam remembered. 
What was more amazing was how swiftly they did things. Usually the, George, the judge formed his opinion quickly, often banging down the gavel and pronouncing judgment in the middle of someone's testimony. Sam watched as dozens of people were brought before the judge. The trials were conducted in Afrikaans late in the day. Elder Beesler was finally called to testify. He spoke in Afrikaans, periodically pointing back at Sam. Sam could barely tell what was happening. After a long time, they called him to the stand and began to question him in Afrikaans. He asked them to switch to English, which they did. The prosecutor spoke excellent English, though with a heavy accent. It made him sound British, but with a guttural overtone. He dropped R's on the end of his words and rolled R's amid words. Words that ended in UH were pronounced ER. America would have come out AMERICUR, with the R being rolled like a child making an engine noise for his toy truck. You are accused of speeding, dangerous driving, and evading arrest. How do you plead? The prosecutor in the long black robe with his heavy accent, obviously annoyed that Sam did not speak Afrikaans. Sam was mystified. I, I wasn't driving, I was the passenger. Elder Beesler was driving. The prosecutor laughed and exchanged an annoyingly look with the judge. So you were the passenger? Yes, sir. He produced the ticket and pointed to the signature. Is this your name? Sam studied the signature and was surprised to see his name on the ticket. That's my name, but that's not my signature. The prosecutor smiled and took back the ticket. Do you have another piece of identification with your signature on it? Sam thought for a moment. No, sir, I don't. Not on me. That's what you told the officer, too. The sighting officer asked for your license, and you said you were from America, and you didn't have any on you. Mr. Beesler, who is a citizen of South Africa, has told us that you were, in fact, driving the car. Why are you lying about it? I'm not lying. I wasn't driving. I haven't driven a car in South Africa yet. You drive on the wrong side of the road, and I... Why would you lie about driving the car? The prosecutor demanded. He was angry with me, or just angry with the world, and was driving like an idiot to try to scare me. The prosecutor spoke to the judge in Afrikaans, and the judge banged the gavel. Guilty, he said in a heavy accent. I sentence you to five, uh, to a fine of two hundred rand. Sam sputtered. I'm not guilty. I don't have two hundred rand. Then twenty lashes and ten days in jail. The judge banged his gavel again, and an armed guard took Sam by the arm. Sam caught sight of Elder Beesler, who sneered at him, turned, and left the room. They took him to a hall down the flight of stairs into a small room with concrete walls. There they took everything from him, including his shoes, socks, belt, shirt, and tie. When they were done, he had only his pants left. They took him down a flight of stairs to a small room. They quickly clamped his hands to the wall and his ankles to the floor. He was facing the wall with his feet behind him, so he had to lean against the wall awkwardly on his elbows. Someone fumbled with a snap and pulled his pants and underwear to the floor. He was too terrified to protest. He had no idea what was going on. For a moment, he thought they were going to rape him. A stiff canvas was unrolled from near the ceiling until it covered his entire backside. The canvas smelled of sweat and blood. Nothing happened for several moments. He could hear people moving around the room. A man's voice whispered and another laughed. Suddenly, he heard a whistling sound, and something exploded across his back. He had never felt such incredible pain. It felt as if someone had hit him with a sword and severed his body several inches deep. Someone said twenty in Afrikaans. Again, the whistling sound and the pain exploded a little lower. His legs buckled as he lost all feeling except the horrendous pain in his buttocks. He, began, he became aware of his wrist nearly breaking off in the manacles and struggled to stand just as another blow struck near his shoulders. Eighteen, the voice said. Just as the feeling began to return from the first blow, another land atop it. This time, his scream drowned out the seventeen. He felt his mind retreating further back inside with each blow. Each blow seemed to land in a new spot between his knees and neck. With a start, he heard a voice say, Six, and he suddenly realized that he had passed out. He wished Oblivion would return as the lash whistled again. It seemed as if the moment lasted forever, the screaming of the whip, the agony of knowing it was going to flail his flesh, and the terror of not knowing where it would hit. When it struck, it landed just above his waist and wrapped around his body so that the greatest force of the blow landed on his side. The force of the blow caused his feet to slip and he fell against the wall. He tried to stand, yet his feet slid again on something wet. He looked down and was surprised to see a puddle of water and realized he had lost control of himself. 
The humiliation was almost greater than the pain, and he cried out even before the lash landed again. By the time the voice had said, One, his body collapsed in incomprehensible agony. His legs refused to support him, and he hung helplessly by his wrists. What seemed like hours later, he was in fact just moments, they undid Sam's shackles. Two guards held him, or he would have crumpled to the floor in his own urine. They helped him stand and pulled his pants back up. He heard someone scream and was startled to realize that he had done it. It sounded as if it had came from someone else. Each step caused his wounds to rub against his clothing, and his, mind's refu his mind refused to move his legs, even when he ordered them to take a step. They half-drug him into a cell and laid him face down on the cot. They were surprisingly careful with him, considering they had just flogged him. A moment later, a man in a white smock came and rubbed ointment on his back and legs. He explained something matter-of-factly in Afrikaans, which Sam could not understand. He wondered at the dichotomy, how they could be brutal and passionless in one moment, and then sympathetic and almost gentle seconds later. He sensed that it was just their job, and knew that they would have to have just as emotionlessly executed him had they been instructed to do so. There were no windows, and the smell cell smelled of disinfectant. The cot was hard, and the only blanket was thin but clean. He alternately felt feverish and freezing cold. He had felt this way before and knew he was slipping into shock. He focused his thoughts on prayer and felt a vague peace come over him for a while, but his mind could not ignore the pain for long. His back felt on fire, and he feared that his clothing would stick to the wounds and become infected. Struggling to the toilet was further torture, and sitting was beyond agony. The toilet in Sam's cell had no seat on it, only the porcelain fixture, and the water from the sink was cold. In spite of a weakly offered prayer, he fell into despair and finally into a tormented sleep. The following no morning, no one spoke to Sam or brought him any food. It was nearly noon before someone appeared. It took him a second to recognize the prosecuting attorney without his robes. He spoke to him through the bars. Sam struggled and finally managed to stand up. His back no longer felt aflame, but felt as if every muscle had been stripped from his skeleton and carefully replaced in all the wrong places. Sam tried to understand what was being said, but finally, in his best Afrikaans, said, I am much sorry. I don't speak Afrikaans. Could you speak English? That's what I thought the man in English... The man said in English and motioned to an armed guard that Sam hadn't noticed. You don't speak Afrikaans. The guard unlocked the bars. Well, I have been learning, but I'm afraid most people speak too fast for me to catch everything. Sam stumbled into the hallway and the jailer slammed the door shut. The attorney gave him a sympathetic look, almost an apology. Last night, the attorney said as I was going to sleep, something was bothering me about your conviction. I woke up in the middle of the night and knew what it was. I know the officer who cited you, and he does not speak English, not even a little. This morning I called him, and he said that you spoke excellent Afrikaans and described you. His description could have fit either of you, but the other man who was with you, except you don't speak Afrikaans, and he does. I wasn't driving the car, Sam said, hope rising in his heart. I believe you. Why didn't you say something when he was accusing you? Sam struggled to think that far back. It seemed like a century ago. He said it all in Afrikaans. I had no idea. Yes, of course. I should have seen that. Well, I can get the charges dropped. The prosecutor then averted his eyes and almost looked chagrined. I have to apologize for the lashes, he said at last. It's unusual to sentence someone to lashes for a traffic violation, although perfectly legal. The judge was angry because you were, or at least at that time, appeared to be lying and refusing to speak in Afrikaans when the signing officer and the other missionary said you spoke the language perfectly. The judge also hates Mormons. His brother and sister-in-law have joined the church and it has divided the family. I'm afraid you were the first Mormon missionary in court since then. And he was, shall we say, somewhat severe. The attorney brightened a bit. However, the good news... Oh. <laughs> I tell you, I have a Spanish accent, but trying to do Afrikaans, I don't know, sometimes I slip into Spanish, but whatever. However, the good news is that you will find the scars are more psychological than physical. The canvas is to keep the whip from cutting. You will only see bruises for a few weeks. You will heal quickly. Perhaps you can look at this as Peter did. Not many people get to take stripes for their faith now, do they? Somehow the man's words made almost made Sam feel better, but they did not take the uh, sensation of being skinned alive from his backside.
Each step was agony. He could not believe that a human body could be made to hurt so badly from such a short event. He was in greater pain than <clears throat> when he was beaten by the boys at the lake, far greater. Do you have something, someone you can call to come get you? The attorney said as he leaned Sam down the hallway. And do you know where the other fellow is? He is guilty of perjury and the speeding citation. He will no doubt be sentenced to lashes for letting you unjustly take his place. Sam stopped amid stride. I don't know where he is. If my opinion means anything, I beg you not to whip him. If there's ever a circumstance that whipping was unjustified, it would be for traffic violators. This he said passionately, and the attorney nodded as if he agreed. One more thing, the prosecutor said, turning to Sam. This is not America, and you have no rights here. Our laws are very specific towards non-citizens. If you complain to anyone about your treatment or start any legal action, you will simply be expelled from the country. My suggestion to you is to tell no one, for your sake and for the sake of your church, being able to continue to do your missionary work in this country. I realize your treatment was unjust, and there are many who would like to lash all Mormons and send you back to America smarting. Do you understand? He was dead serious, and Sam believed him. They walked to the prosecutor's small office that was filled with books. It had no windows and looked as much like a cell as the room they had imprisoned Sam in the previous night. The prosecutor showed him the phone on his desk and turned to leave. Sam interrupted his departure. Thank you for liberating me. I applaud your sense of justice. I realize you should, could have easily left me there just as easy. The prosecutor bowed slightly, but Sam was not finished. However, you were wrong about me not having any rights in this country. No matter what your laws are, and no matter how insignificant my standing before your law is, there is a higher law. I am a servant of Jesus Christ, and before his law I stand innocent. All men will one day be judged by that higher law. I would rather be flogged to death unjustly, according to the laws of men, than to stand before the bar of God, having ordered that flogging. The prosecutor's face slowly drained of color, and Sam felt his heart burning with the Holy Spirit. He suspected for a moment that he might be thrown back into the cell, but the prosecutor just nodded and said, Let me know when you have finished your call. I will bring you something to eat. The prosecutor walked to the door, opened it, but then turned back to face Sam. It's high irony to me that you can barely walk, and with a word, I could confine you to prison for a very long time, yet you speak boldly to me, and for reasons that escape me, I feel no anger toward you. You stand to lose a great deal by your boldness, but I am the one who trembles. He stared at Sam in wonder. President Carlson picked up Sam three hours later. Sam had spent the intervening hours talking to Prosecutor Vanderkirk, who had canceled his court duties for the day. During that time, Sam taught him the gospel and bore testimony in a way he had never experienced before. They talked a great deal about justice, mercy, and judgment. The attorney listened intently and occasionally made notes on his yellow pad. Sam was not surprised to find the prosecutor extremely knowledgeable about the scriptures and highly intelligent. Mr. Vanderkirk would quote a scripture that seemed to contradict what Sam was saying, and immediately Sam would quote the verse before it, or another verse which brought the meaning into true perspective. The wonderful part was that the scriptures quoted came to Sam's mind from only a cursory reading of the New Testament in seminary before his mission. Yet he could visualize the verses and even quote them as if he were looking at the page. It was a marvelous experience, and by the time President Carlson arrived, they had become, if not friends, at least respected opponents. There was a feeling of spiritual discovery, and the glow of Holy Spirit was upon them. President Carlson brought a member who was also an attorney. They arrived with flames shooting from their nostrils. Sam wouldn't have believed it possible for President Carlson to have become this incensed. They would have launched into the prosecutor with a blue vengeance, except for the feeling of peace that existed in the room as they entered. It became obvious that there was no need for defense, and the Holy Spirit overshadowed their indignation. Sam introduced President Carlson and briefly explained Vanderkirk's role in setting him free, without mentioning his role in getting him lashed. They shook hands, and as they were about to depart, Vanderkirk pressed a business card into Sam's hands. You have impressed me, young man. I wish I had your simple faith in your black-and-white perspective of the world. I would to God that it was as simple as you say. Sam transferred the card to his pocket and claps, clasped the prosecutor's hand in both of his own. With all my heart, I know this is true, he spoke softly. Looking into <clears throat> deep into Sam's eyes, he replied, That is the most troubling about you, young man. I know you know it's true. Your simple faith is more powerful than any sophisticated argument I have ever heard, and believe me, I have heard many. 
God bless you, Sam, said and released his hand. I think he already has, was Vanderkirk's sincere reply. Immobilized, Sam stood outside the car, looking down at the soft seat. He could not bring himself to lower his bruised flesh onto it. Get in, Elder, and let's go, President Carlson urged him. Sam looked up at him, tears pooling in his eyes. President, would you give me a blessing so that I can get into the car? President Carlson came around to the side of the car and drew with whispering, within whispering distance. What's troubling you, Elder? How can I help? So saying, <clears throat> he placed a hand in the middle of Sam's back, which made Sam groan and turn away. President Carlson's eyes grew big with disbelief. What did they do to you? He demanded, anger rising in his face. He glanced back toward the courthouse and then at Sam. Sam could tell that he was on the verge of marking a chain back in the building. President, please give me a blessing so I can bear to sit in this car. Everything else is as it should be. Just my body needs help. Sam gave him a calm but pleasing look. President Carlson surprised Sam by suddenly raising his arm to the square and in a voice of authority saying, In the name of Jesus Christ and by the authority of the holy Melchizedek priesthood, I rebuke the power of evil over you and command your body to be at rest and to heal according to the name of, according to the timetable of the Lord. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. No sooner had he said these words than the pain changed in his flesh. It didn't go away, but it became different, tolerable, or perhaps even acceptable. Sitting was still agony, but his heart soared with joy. He was overcome by a feeling of peace and knowledge that God had accepted his sacrifice. As they drove home, Sam related all that had happened, including the prosecutor's warning. President Carlson wanted to drive him immediately to the hospital, but Sam insisted he would be fine. They drove straight to the mission home, where he was given a proper meal and a soft bed. Sister Carlson wept when she saw his back. He fell asleep after, as she gently rubbed ointment onto his wounds. Sam awoke with a start when someone's alarm went off. He felt rushed and considerably better, uh, refreshed and considerably better. For the first time, he looked at his back in the mirror. He was surprised to see 20 distinct red welts surrounded by pools of black and blue. He expected to see open wounds and bleeding sores. Nowhere was his skin broken. The damage was deep and debilitating, but it would heal. It was later that evening when the deep musical chimes of the front door announced the arrival of an unexpected visitor. All the elders were out on teaching appointments, and only he and President Carlson were at home. President Carlson was startled to see Prosecutor Vandekirk and a successful-looking woman at the door. In the circular drive was a limousine and two police cars. For a moment, he was stunned into inaction. Excuse us for dropping in, but we have to come to speak to Sam Mahoy. Is he available? Vandekirk asked. President Carlson smiled and invited them into the foyer. Sam was wearing the loosest clothing he could find, and studying the scriptures with President Carlson popped into his room. It took him a few minutes to get himself looking like a missionary. When Sam arrived in the big living room, President Carlson was explaining the history of the mission home. As soon as Sam walked in, Mr. Vanderkirk stood, as did the woman. They seemed awkward, almost intimidated. There was a moment of discomfort between them. It seemed to stretch into eternity. Sam didn't know what to say and was grateful when the woman stepped forward to shake his hand. I'm pleased to meet you, she said. You have made quite an impression on my husband. He spoke so highly of you that I insisted on meeting you. I couldn't believe you were not angry for the rough treatment you received. I can see from an expression on your face, however, that anger is not part of your feeling. What are you feeling, Sam? Mrs. Vanderkirk was a slender woman in her mid-forties. Her demeanor was regal and her carriage proud. She had dark, almost black hair and vibrant blue eyes, which sparkled with keen intelligence. Her face was friendly and most pleasant to look at. Sam liked her. It was obvious they were wealthy and comfortable with status, position, and power. However, Sam did not get the feeling that she used her status to indulge pettiness. Instead, she seemed to use her position as a means to a greater end. He could not guess what that end might be, nor how he fit into it, but he was sure that Vanderkirk's would not be there if he didn't figure it out some way. <clears throat> <laughs> Sam cleared his throat, and so did I. <clears throat> and still holding her hand, he said, I'm feeling like I should tell you why I'm in South Africa. Why don't you take a seat, and with your indulgence, I'll tell you. The Vanderkirks took a seat on the large velvet couch, and Sam stood near the piano. He began telling of his youth and the faith his parents taught him. He told them about Jimmy and the lessons his passing had taught him. He told them why he'd come on a mission and what joy it had already brought into his soul. He told him how much the gospel meant to him and how he knew it was true. 
He concluded by saying, You asked me what I'm feeling. I'm feeling overwhelmed with his love and the breathtaking beauty of his eternal plan. And I'm feeling very grateful for this opportunity to explain my feelings to you, brother and sister Vanderkirk. During the nearly 40 minutes of his recitation, Mrs. Vanderkirk remained intent, occasionally nodding, sometimes laughing, sometimes frowning with deep thought. When he finally finished, she stood and walked to where he stood. When she was directly in front of him, she studied him intently as he began to feel foolish. Finally, she said, We are members of the Dutch Reformed Church and hold responsible positions therein. We have fought the incursion of your church and several others in our country with all our energy. Our efforts are directly responsible for the limited number of representatives your church is allowed to have in our country at any time. <laughs> My accent. I'm slipping from Indian to Mexican to... <laughs> I don't even know what that was. Uh, Full-on British. <clears throat> I have seen your missionary efforts as an invasion of sorts. When my husband came home speaking highly of one of those people, please forgive me, detestable Mormon missionaries, I decided I would meet you and discredit you before his eyes. She cocked her head to one side. My husband is a city prosecuting attorney, and in line with to be elected regional prosecutor of the whole nation. I am a lawyer of no small consequence, my power, uh, myself in powerful circles. When he came home raving about you, I had planned to reopen his eyes to the threat that your religion poses in our way of life, and to belittle your gracious response to his rough treatment of you in jail, as a ploy to win him over. Yeah, I'm full British now. <laughs> I'm so sorry you have to listen to this. Okay. After all, it would have been quite a contest to win uh, over one of your greatest opponents to your way of thinking, would it not? <laughs> I might have to restart I'm going into the Cockney now. Uh, I'm just going to do English. Okay. She turned and spoke to her husband as if he were the judge in a criminal trial. However, I would bet considerable money that Sam was completely unaware until this moment of who we are or the threat we represent. He has said nothing of the ordeal and has spoken quite plainly from his heart. He has rendered my cross-examination impotent and silenced the voice of opposition without even knowing I had come here to disembowel his arguments. She turned back to Sam. Either you are the most ingenious liar of all time, or you're speaking the truth. In either case, I beg your permission to hear you again on this matter to determine which of the two it might be. Sam wasn't sure that what she said made sense, but he nodded. Her husband stood as they were turning away. Sam's mouth opened without his permission and said, Until tomorrow evening, then. They paused as if considering, then nodded and replied, At seven. President Carlson ushered them into the night, and they were gone, but a sweet spirit rested upon those remaining in the mission home. Journal entry, April 5th, 1974. Yesterday I had the dubious privilege of being falsely accused and whipped. They gave me twenty lashes. I've never felt such incredible pain in my life. They placed a canvas over my back to keep the whip from cutting my skin, and still my back is a mess, which will take weeks to heal. I can't imagine what Christ must have endured when they scourged him. He must have nearly died from that alone. Prior to that, he had suffered unknown horrors in the garden and would later be crucified. It causes my mind to balk and my soul to anguish. It makes my soul cry out in his behalf just to think of his pain. The man who prose prosecuted me later released me. I felt no anger towards him and he found my behavior novel enough that he and his wife came to the mission home. I bore my testimony and taught them a little. They asked if they could come again. I think they still hope to convince themselves that my faith is insincere. They don't realize that they are investigating the church and have a testimony. Missionary work is so amazing when it's done the Lord's way. I think the whole lashes thing was an elaborate door approach. The Vanderkirks came the following evening prepared to debate and brought several pages of notes that they carefully referred to. As they were seated, they began with the first item on their list and laid siege to Sam and President Carlson. Sam was aghast at the charge in their demeanor and had almost nothing to say. Accordingly, they shifted their assault to President Carlson, who entertained their questions and tried to answer as plainly as he could. Even though the tone was friendly, it was still a debate, and they clearly intended to win. President Carlson had been a lawyer, even a federal judge, and knew how, the debate, how to debate very well, but it was evident from the posture that he was not enjoying the evening. The Vanderkirks were, however, and with each question President Carlson could not answer to their satisfaction, their attitudes were more triumphant. After nearly an hour, Mrs. Vanderkirk suddenly turned to Sam, who had become a non-participant in the discussion. "'Why have you stopped participating in the discussion, Elder Sam?' she asked. He had earlier asked them to call him Elder, and she had 
misinterpreted his words, so he became Elder Sam. Without preamble, he said exactly what was on his mind. I didn't come 6,000 miles to debate doctrine, and didn't come here to... Didn't come here... Oh, no. <laughs> and you didn't come here this evening to learn. Given those incongruencies, this evening was futile. From the moment you walked through the door, neither of us has been edified. If you wish to strengthen your own beliefs, then go talk to your minister. I'm not interested in wearing a bullseye on my forehead so you can bolster your own opinions by lobbying arrows at me to see which ones stick. Mrs. Vanderkirk smiled. That's pretty direct. You seem to have a way of cutting to the chase, Elder Sam. Since we have monopolized the evening with our debate, would you care to occupy the last remaining moments in whatever format of which you approve? It was, after all, you who initiated this event through your unfortunate experiences in my jail, and we are but guests in your home. Yes, Elder Sam, please do, Mrs. Vanderkirk encouraged. We are both lawyers and are most comfortable with debate and cross-examination. You choose the format that is most comfortable to you, and we will listen. Sam was suddenly on stage without a script. He paused, waiting for the right thing to come to mind. The Vanderkirks waited patiently. When it came to him, it was so bold that it startled him, yet peace washed over him, and once again he knew that the Lord desired. As before, he prayerfully sought the courage to speak the Lord's words. Brother Vanderkirk, Sam began, when you released from me from jail, you said I was like Peter who was whipped unjustly for preaching Christ and that I should see it as a blessing. I have endeavored to do that. After all, your words initiated the peace I now feel concerning those events. In that same spirit, I would like to propose to you uh, that both of you are like Saul of Tarsus. You have gone about with great conviction in attempting to destroy the work of God in bringing forth the bringing forth, uh, uh, the work that God is bringing forth through the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The prosecutor looked stunned and Sam continued, This time speaking to both of them, Like Saul, you have both believed with all of your hearts that you were doing good and that the Church is a threat to your way of life. As a result, you have persecuted the saints and unjustly came, uh, cast some into prison and caused others to suffer unjust punishment. And like Saul, because your hearts were good, but your actions misguided, the Lord has seen fit to interrupt you on your road to Damascus. He has sent you a witness with, of sufficient power to turn your hearts away from your misguided course and to cause you to look upon the latter-day work with a new perspective and to feel within your hearts the need for change. I, know, I now say to you in words to echo your souls as they did Saul's, Brother Vanderkirk, Sister Vanderkirk, why persecute thou the church of God? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Sister Vanderkirk fell back in the couch as if struck in the face, and Brother Vanderkirk held his chin between thumb and forefinger, elbow upon his knee as if in deep contemplation. A long silence fell upon them as they pondered his words. Brother Vanderkirk finally broke the silence. Saul's vision was accompanied by a sign. He was struck blind and dumb, as I recall. Your invocation of his vision is well chosen, but impotent without an accompanying sign. What sign shall we expect to accompany our conversion on the road to Damascus, he asked. His voice was soft, but it held an edge of disbelief, of challenge. This is the sign I give you, Sam heard himself say. He had no time to wonder what the sign was before he said, You are an adulterous man. Four people gasped simultaneously, including Sam and President Carlson. A stunned silence hung over them as the accusation seemed to bounce back and forth across the room. Sister Vanderkirk stared at Sam with uh, contemptuous indignation, waiting for her husband to slam him into the ground with his denial. But when no denial came, her expression turned to disbelief, and her gaze reluctantly swung toward her mate. Deny it, she hissed in Afrikaans, barely loud enough for Sam to hear. After a long pause, he looked into his wife's face. His eyes were pleading, but his words were more startling than a denial. He spoke in Afrikaans and unexpectedly, Sam understood every word as easily as he had spoken in English. I asked for a sign, and this is indeed a true sign. Only God has known these many years, and it could only have come from him. Would you have me add my crimes to my crimes perjury before God? Would you rather be married to a lying adulterer or just an adulterer? Mrs. Vanderkirk bolted to her feet, grasping her handbag. I think it's time to leave, she stated tersely, and turned toward her husband, who remained immobile on the couch. I will get a ride home in one of the escort cars. She took two hasty steps toward the door before Sam's voice brought her to an abrupt stop. Without knowing why or even how, he spoke in Afrikaans. His pronunciation was awful and his sentence structure sloppy, but his message was perfect. There is one more lesson for Saul learned from the sign which you both will learn when you come tomorrow night. 
Mrs. Vandekirk turned toward him, her face red with anger. Her voice hissed with wrath as she stabbed the air with her finger, punctuating her words. What lesson could you possibly change the fact that my husband is an adulterer who has betrayed my trust in our marriage vows? Sam cocked his head to one side and whispered in Afrikaans, Forgiveness. They did not come that next night or at seven or even eight o'clock. It was nearly nine o'clock when a Mercedes pulled up in front without a police escort. It was nearly ten minutes later when the doorbell rang. President and Sister Carlson met them at the door. This was the first time the Vanderkirks had met Sister Carlson, and she greeted them warmly. Sister Vanderkirk seemed especially grateful to have Sister Carlson join the meeting. Brother Vanderkirk seemed oppressed and brooding. They were not in a pleasant mood, and whatever portion of the Spirit of the Lord had been at the house seemed to evaporate with their arrival. When they were seated, Sister Carlson brought them rouabo tea. The prosecutor and his wife sat on the couch several feet apart, an almost visible barrier of enmity separating them. Okay, I just looked up how to pronounce the T. It is rooibos. <laughs> so I should go back and edit all that, but I'm probably not. President Carlson suggested that they begin with a prayer, something that had failed to do in their previous meetings with the Vanderkirks. Their guests immediately stood and bowed their heads. President Carlson offered a beautiful prayer. When everyone was seated, all eyes turned to Sam. He knew this would happen, yet he honestly didn't have a clue what to say. Still knowing this would occur, he had resisted the urge to prepare something, preferring to wait upon the Lord to fill his lips with words of truth. He even suppressed the urge to ad-lib as the seconds pushed toward a minute. Still nothing came, and the second minute came and went in silence. Elder? President Carlson asked quietly, but Sam just shook his head. Silence stretched on for several minutes until everyone but Sam grew uncomfortable. Sister Vanderkirk asked impatiently, Why haven't you said anything? Brother Vanderkirk answered her before... Uh, answered her question because like before we didn't come here to learn we came here to be angry and nothing he could have said would have made a difference silence is the only thing that could penetrate the wall i came here with in reality i am the one who should speak turning to his wife he said i need to beg your forgiveness and god's forgiveness believe me when i say that my crime was many years ago and was never repeated i have anguished over it for years and wanted to tell you and have washed this taint from my soul but i have n never known how I didn't understand how you could ever forgive me. I only knew that telling you would break your heart, and I couldn't bring myself to do that. At this moment, Sam's heart flooded with understanding, and he opened his mouth and taught them the truths that could heal their souls. He began with the Garden of Eden and told of Adam's long separation from the Lord because of his transgression. He told them of Adam's eventual understanding of the mission of Jesus Christ and the unspeakable joy of becoming a participant in the atonement. He told them the nat uh, of human nature, the natural man, and how all men are sinners. He taught them about the restoration of priesthood power in our dispensation and the cleansing power of baptism. He invited them to be washed clean and become whole through the power of the holy ordinance. As Sam spoke, Sister Vanderkirk softened visibly. Her husband wept and she held his head against her bosom and comforted him. When he could speak, he asked Sam to arrange for his baptism and to help him prepare so that he could, for the cleansing would be absolute, so that the cleansing would be absolute. Of all the beautiful things Sam had ever seen, the the look of love on Sister Vanderkirk's face was the sweetest. He thought of how the Savior might look as he gazes down upon a humble, repentant soul, and considered that the tender look on the face was a reflection of that perfect love and forgiveness. The Vanderkirks came nearly every night for the next two weeks and were baptized sixteen days from the day Sam stood before Brother Vanderkirk in court. Their baptism was a solemn and joyful affair. Since Brother Vanderkirk worked for the government and the judge-reformed church controlled the government, he fully expected to lose his job. Already, dozens of friends had abandoned them and heaped ridicule upon them. Family had disowned them and their closest allies had rejected them, yet they considered it a small price to pay and gladly walked away from it all with no apparent remorse. It was what they knew Jesus Christ wanted them to do and their sacrifice was of little consequence to them. Over 150 people attended their baptism, not a single one of them from their formal circle of friends and family. Days later, Brother Vanderkirk was fired from his job. Sister Vanderkirk was demoted at her law firm until she finally quit. They lost their home after a few months and eventually moved into a small apartment. They sold most of their positions to pay for their needs, but inwardly rejoiced. Their faith was fantastic, and their joy in finding the true church was utter and complete. They brought a sense of renewal and determination to the entire ward, and their courageous example revitalized the blessed and blessed everyone who became their new friends. The ward rallied 
around them and formed an impenetrable circle of safety. Their humility and gracious acceptance of the cost of righteousness won them friends and and everyone they met. In time, their incredible story was told and retold among members and missionaries alike until those who did not know them thought that it was sheer fabrication. Yet every word of it was true. The Vanderkirks had indeed sacrificed everything, other than life itself, for the truth. In time, Brother Vanderkirk ran for election as the regional prosecuting attorney. His new friends in the ward, ward donated all of the money. His opponent ran his entire argument on the basis that Vanderkirk was a Mormon. Every advertisement published bashed him for his membership in the Mormon cult. Brother Vanderkirk ran on the campaign slogan that he had the courage to do what he felt was right regardless of the cost. The campaign caught national attention since his opponent became bitter and hateful. Brother Vanderkirk remained aloof, pressing his message of courageous honesty. In congregations throughout the nation, sermons were taught with no other message than to urge people to defeat the Mormon threat. The government itself donated money to the other man's campaign, and armed guards had to be stationed outside Vanderkirk's apartment at night. Because of the vigor of the opposition, Brother Vanderkirk's campaign cost very little, but he, ha- he had all of the publicity he could have desired. In the end, he won a decisive victory. Everyone in the nation knew that a Mormon had been elected to a high national office for the first time in their history, and missionary work surged ahead with unprecedented en- energy. Journal entry, June 1st, 1974. I have spent almost a month in the mission home. My back is healed enough so that I can get around without much pain. I still can't sleep on my back or right side. The skin is still black and blue and has shrunken, or at least it feels tight. I have been doing stretches to try to regain full movement. Sister Carlson has been wonderful, and every evening she rubs ointment on my back. She also massages the muscles to keep them from balling up. Her ministrations have been have greatly lessened my suffering. About the only missionary work I have done is teaching the Vanderkirks. They were baptized on May 29th. It was a glorious experience. I baptized them both, and President Carlson confirmed them. Brother Vanderkirk bore his testimony after the service and said that he had felt the burden of sin lifted from his shoulders. He turned toward me and asked me to forgive them, him for the abuse he had heaped upon me. No one except Prist- no one except President and Sister Carlson and me knows about the lashes, and everyone wondered what he meant. Afterward, I gave him a hug and told him I loved him. He wept on my shoulder and I on his. President Carlson told me today that I was being transferred back to Germiston. At least I will be in the same ward with Brother and Sister Vanderkirk. It just occurred to me that I didn't know their first names until I asked for their names in the water of a baptism. His first name is Joseph, and hers is Emma. Because of reasons that are obvious, their names became precious to me the moment I heard them. What a fantastic, almost poetic coincidence that they should possess the names of the greatest people of all... uh, names of the greatest prophet of all time and his beloved wife. They didn't realize their names had significance in LDS history until I explained it to them. They both wept and proclaimed themselves unworthy. My new companion, Elder Snyder, is from the mission home. He is not happy about the transfer. He was President Carson's personal secretary and wanted to become assistant to the president. He sees this as a demotion. This last month, I hated to be around him. He is arrogant, demanding, and self-centered. I just hope he's a good missionary. I can put up with almost anything, except not doing the work. I guess we'll see. Sam and Elder Snyder loaded the VW Beetle and drove away from the mission home in silence. At almost the exact spot where Elder Beasler told him that he hated him, Elder Snyder cleared his throat. Sam winced and waited. Elder Snyder gave him a surprised look and smiled. Elder Mahoy, I know you've been in the mission home recovering from an illness. I know that you think that I'm an insufferable brat. I guess I am at that. But we have something in common. We both love the Lord. If you'll be patient with me, I will be the best senior companion you've ever had. What do you say? Sam could hardly believe his ears, and he relaxed. Elder Sam answered, I just want you to know that I recognize you as a senior companion, and I will do whatever I can to serve the Lord and be a good junior. Let's give it a try. They drove to a different boarding house than the one he had spent that one night at with Elder Beasler. This one was a big old building, apparently built as a boarding house. They were on the third floor, and there were no elevators. On their floor were perhaps 25 rooms, and all the tenants of the room shared one big bathroom. The first morning there, they went into the shower together. They were obligated by mission rules to remain within one another's site, which included public restrooms. The shower was a large room with shower heads on three walls. Each shower head had 
a stubby enclosure on two sides about armpit height, but was open to the main room. At one time there had been shower curtains, which had long since vanished. Sham, Sam had just about finished showering when he heard a woman's voice mutter something about forgetting shampoo. He turned in time to see a completely naked woman stepping into the shower next to his. He was so stunned that he froze for a few seconds and only began to breathe again when she asked to borrow his shampoo. He handed it to her without looking her direction. At that very moment, his eyes took on a wheel of their own, and even as his mind was shouting no, his eyes swept across his, her bare body as he turned. He hurriedly left without a second thought about his shampoo. As he and Elder Schneider were leaving, two younger women walked past them. One had a towel wrapped around her waist, naked above that, and the other was completely naked except for a towel tossed across one shoulder. Sam bumped into Elder Snyder three times before either of them found the door. All three girls were giggling as Sam and Elder Snyder bolted from the shower. They ran to their room, rooms soaking wet, each with only a towel around them. They sat in their room, breathing heavily, shivering even in the heat of the African summer. Finally, Elder Snyder stood and suggested that they both fast. Sam thought it was a wonderful idea. He could not get the image of the woman from flashing in his mind. Even when he read the scriptures, he periodically had to force the images from his mind. To make matters worse, they were attractive women. He wondered if the images would be more or less haunting if they had been ugly. He derided himself for even having wondered that. Derided? Yeah, okay. But could not force the images to leave for any length of time. The next morning, he waited until the girls left. They took a quick shower in lukewarm water. It made them shower about an hour later than they would have otherwise, but at least they were alone. The water was heated by a big, wooden, burning boiler that the landlord stoked up each morning except for Sunday. He kept the water warm until about 8 o'clock. After 8, the elders could have the shower to themselves because the water uh, quickly went cold. If they timed it right, they could shower alone, but still catch the last few minutes of warm water. Their actual room was not much larger than a walk-in closet. They were two beds that were about two feet separating them. At one end of the room was a wooden wardrobe large enough to hang their shirts. The next Saturday, a servant girl came by and collected laundry. They gave her their shirts. She returned them that evening, all washed and pressed. She had done a good job, and they paid her several rand. However, when they put them on, there were little black spots all over their shirts. They questioned her about it next week, and she only shrugged. They were out tracting the next afternoon and came upon the same girl washing their shirts and garments. She was sitting on the curb in front of a house. The curb was running with water from the street. She had a lump of asphalt in her hand, pounding a shirt on the curb. Their garments were spread out on the grass in a long row to dry, plainly visible to passerine motorists. They were aghast and scooped up their wet clothes, paid the girl, and left. The little black spots were from her lump of asphalt. Sister Vandekirk heard about this and insisted on doing their laundry thereafter. They were grateful beyond words. Elder Snyder turned out to be an incredibly hard worker. The elders diligently tracked many hours after each day. They worked and worked and worked, all without success. Without exception, every door was closed in their face. The more success they didn't have, the harder Elder Snyder pushed. They began tracking several hours more each day than required by the rules, but still had zero investigators. Sam suggested a special fast, which Elder Snyder readily agreed to. They decided the they needed extraordinary help and planned a two-day fast. The weather was turning cooler, but was still hot, about 90 degrees with 80% humidity. They physically strained themselves to complete the fast. Still, they had no teaching opportunities. The next Sunday at church, Bishop Fanstein handed them a referral. These people were friends of his, and even though he had not discussed it with them, he felt they might be receptive. He asked the missionaries not to use his name. They were disappointed about that, but agreed, grateful for the referral. That evening, Sam and his companion drove to the subdivision indicated on the referral card, which stated the street name and the house number. The subdivision was new and extremely large. The houses were nearly identical, with hundreds of them in tidy rows. However, there was not a single street sign. They could not tell which house was the correct one. Several dozen houses even had the same house number. Well, Elder, the only way to work this is to knock on every house with that number and introduce ourselves. Sam's companion announced, let's do it. 
Sam sat in the passenger side of the vehicle, frustrated that Elder Snyder did everything the hard way. He had once suggested that they could rely on the spirit to guide them in their tracking, and by doing so, they would not have to rely on their own wisdom to find investigators. Elder Snyder had frankly told him that was foolishness. He insisted that they were to find the investigators and not expect the spirit to dump them into their laps. He refused to entertain the thought of divine guidance in anything except at special times or in desperate circumstances. Elder Snyder, if we willing yeah if we willingly to rely on the spirit it would guide us to those people sam pleaded the lord knows where they live why don't we just try elder schneider gave him an indulgent look as if sam were a child who needed to be taught a lesson he brought the vw to a complete stop near the entrance of the subdivision and turned to sam okay smart guy here's what we'll do as i pull up to each intersection you listen to the spirit and tell us which way to turn almost immediately sam felt his heart burn and responded i have a better idea you're the senior companion. As we pull up to each intersection, you tell me which way you would go. After that, I will go in the direction I pick. Good enough? Yeah, whatever you want. And when we're done goofing around, we'll go to track them out like real missionaries. He drove to the first intersection, which was a T. Turn right, Elder Snyder said. Sam didn't know the way, but what he did know was that he had been prompted to choose the opposite of whatever Snyder said. Left, he countered. They turned left. Shortly, they came to a four-way intersection. Snyder chose right again, which would have taken them into the heart of the subdivision. Left, Sam countered. At each intersection, they went the opposite of whatever Elder Snyder made. Finally, they ended up on a street still under construction. It was a dead-end street, and none of the houses had yard lights on, and so they could not see the house numbers. There were no street lights, yet it was impossible to tell which house was which without pulling into each driveway and shining their headlights onto the house. Um, what does that say? Welly Willoos, we are an, we are not at a dend end. I don't, I don't know what that pronunciation is. <laughs> anyway, Elder Snyder said it triumphantly. <laughs> Sam chose the opposite and said, this is the right street. You choose a house. Elder Snyder gave him a don't you ever give up look and drove slowly down the dirt road until he picked a house on the left, which looked like someone was home. Sam pointed to a dark house on the opposite side of the street. That one, he said. They pulled into the driveway and saw it actually had the correct house number. Well, that's pretty amazing, but we'll never know. No one's home. Let's leave, Elder Snyder said. Sam chose the opposite. I say we knock. Snyder shrugged, willing to put his foolishness to rest. They walked up to the door and knocked. It was dark inside, and they knocked again. Just as Elder Snyder was turning to leave, footsteps sounded in the house. The porch light snapped on. Good evening, Elder Snyder said to the woman who came to the door. Are you guys Mormons, she asked suspiciously. Sam had heard the question a thousand times, and it was usually followed by a door slamming in his face. We are we're from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. People sometimes call us Mormons, Elder Snyder answered in his best missionary smile. Really? She replied. For a minute, I thought you were Jehovah's Witnesses. They've been around a lot lately. Let me get my husband. His best friend at the work is a Mormon bishop. I think he's been waiting to learn more about the Mormon church. Could you come in for a minute? Sam gave Elder Snyder a smile and led the way to the investigator's home. Brother and Sister Solomon were golden beyond golden. Teaching them was like giving the discussions in the LTM. Their answers were almost verbatim with the mythical Brother Brown in the discussions. Elder Snyder insisted on giving the first discussion word perfect, and the Solomons enjoyed every word. The spirit was strong, and they rejoiced. Before the evening was over, the Solomons had happily committed to continuing on with the discussions, and they even discussed baptism. On the way home, Elder Snyder was quiet. He drove with both hands on the wheel, his eyes straight ahead. Sam knew what was on his mind. He was disturbed about how they had found the Solomons' home. Elder, Snyder said finally, stealing a glance at Sam. Sam didn't reply, but waited for him to continue. I've been thinking about what you did in directing us to the Solomon's house. I have to admit that you're right. I still can't believe that every decision I made was wrong. That hurts. When Elder Snyder didn't continue, Sam said, It wasn't me who directed them to the, their home. It was the Lord through the whisperings of the Spirit. I had little to do with it. I think the Lord wanted you to have a graphic lesson in what the Spirit is able to do if you'll use it. Tell me the truth, Elder Snyder responded almost instantly, a nose of disbelief in his voice. Did the bishop draw you a map to their home? You must have known how to get there. You set me up, huh? Come on, tell me the truth. The truth is that it happened exactly as you saw it. I had no map. 
You can ask the bishop if he gave me a map. Remember that you were the one to say which way we should go at each intersection. All I knew is that I was to pick the opposite of whatever you said. I got that instruction from the spirit, and it was I was willing to be obedient. Snyder gave him a sidelong glance. Well, he said, I find this all hard to swallow. I know that the spirit doesn't work like that. It is... I'm as spiritual as any missionary, and I'll tell you, it just isn't like that. You have to work things out for yourself and then ask for confirmation. The only way the Spirit could have led us to that house is if we stopped it and fasted and prayed at each, at every street corner. Even then, I doubted the Lord would have shown us. He expected us to do the work, not the other way around. We're here to serve Him, not for Him to serve us. Sam felt his heart sinking. If Elder Snyder couldn't see the truth of such a powerful example of guidance by the Spirit, nothing Sam could say would penetrate his heart. Sam bowed his head and said, I know where you're coming from. That seemed to satisfy his senior companion, and they drove home in silence. Journal entry, June 22, 1974. We have been teaching the Solomons for nearly a month. Each of our discussions has been wonderful. Their baptism is scheduled for this coming Friday. They are excited, especially Sister Solomon. The Solomons are our only investigators. We have tracked the souls off of our shoes, and there just doesn't seem to be anyone to teach. Elder Snyder works harder than any missionary I've seen, but he still refuses to listen to the Spirit. He told me that when he returns home, he wants to be able to say that he served a good mission. He doesn't want to report that the Spirit served a good mission and that he wants to serve there to be to provide backup. I feel sorry for him. He has a good heart and desperately wants to serve the Lord, but is inflicting an unnecessary pain upon himself. Except for a few times when I suggested things that he agrees with, he has completely ignored me and the Spirit as well. I received another letter home. <laughs> I received another letter from home today. It was in the mail for over a month. The family has settled in the Maranuska Valley near Wasilla, Alaska. They just finished building a new chapel and divided the ward. Dad was made the bishop of the new Wasilla ward. Because he was made bishop, he has to quit his job at the Trans-Alaska Pipeline and is looking for work in Wasilla or Anchorage. The pipeline job was two weeks on, two weeks off, and he knew he wouldn't be able to be the bishop with that kind of schedule. They have been living in a camp trailer and almost have enough saved to build a house, and they are waiting until Dad finds other work before they start building. They have to do something before winter comes. Dad says winter in Alaska is fierce, and everyone tells him he doesn't want to go through it living in a camp trailer. <clears throat> As soon as they pulled up to the Solomon's Drive, Sam knew something was wrong. A bad feeling surrounded that house. Do you feel that, Elder? Sam asked. What? That negative feeling. I think the Solomons are in trouble. The Solomons are fine. I think you have an overactive imagination. Sister Solomon let them in. Her eyes were puffy and red. She didn't offer them a seat. Elders, I'm sorry. My husband has decided that we're not being baptized. He doesn't want you to come around anymore. Sam was thunderstruck, but not surprised. The feeling inside the house was like a cold shower. Are you sure this is what you want? Elder Schneider asked. He was terribly disappointed. If it's what you really want, then we won't come back. It's your decision, but I would like you to be very sure. Sister Solomon glanced toward the back of the house, as if unsure, and then nodded bleakly. I don't think he'll ever change his mind. I've seen him like this before, and he is adamant. I'm sorry. I know the church is true, but it wouldn't be right for me to be baptized against his will. It would probably cause a divorce. Please leave now before he comes becomes more agitated. Elder Snyder nodded sadly and turned toward the door. He was halfway through it and realized his companion had not followed. He placed a hand on Sam's arm, but Sam shrugged it off. Sister Solomon, may we speak to Brother Solomon? I feel we need to talk to him directly. Her eyes brightened a bit and then sank back into despair. I don't think he'll come out, and if he does, it won't be pleasant. He'll probably scream at you just like... She cut herself off. Let me see. She disappeared into the back of the house. She was gone a long time before returning. After a few minutes, Brother Solomon stomped into the room, his hair standing on end and his clothing crumpled. His face was white with fury and his eyes were wide and darting like a wild animal. No sooner had he rounded the corner than he snarled at them. My wife told you to leave this house. You and your evil religion are never to come back. Do you understand? Now go. Get before I get my shotgun. Elder Snyder was pulling on Sam's arm, urging him to leave, but Sam's feet seemed riveted to the floor. A quiet urging brought his arm to the square, and he heard a voice begin to speak as if he were a spectator. In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of him. 
No sooner had these words escaped his lips than Brother Solomon took two steps backward, as if slugged in the chest. He fell to one knee, and his head fell into his hands. Sister Solomon gasped and rushed to his side. After a minute, he stood and struggled to the chair. Sam backed up to open the way. It took several minutes for him to recover. His eyes were tired, but normal, as they fastened on Sam. Elder, I don't know what to say, but for the last three days, ever since your last visit, I have fought a terrible battle. Every evil thought, every temptation, every hour and every day has been hell. I haven't been able to sleep or eat for three days. I feel as if I have literally wrestled with a devil. And at this point, I'm not sure if I lost or won. Brother Solomon, Sam began, but was cut off by a wave of Brother Solomon's hand. I don't want to hear it. I strongly suspect that the church is true. My wife says it is, and for a while I believed it was. But if I have to go through this to be a member of God's true church, then I'm not willing to do it. It's just not worth it. The first time I felt relief was when I told my wife to tell you to never come back. As soon as you stepped inside this house, the battle returned. It went away when you raised your arm, but I feel it returning. Please, go now. Let's end this like gentlemen rather than with me threatening to shoot you. Believe me, ten minutes ago, I would have done it, just to stop the battle in my head. Now please go. This time, Sam let Elder Snyder tugging... Sam let Elder Snyder tug him toward the door, but before he closed the door, Sam said, Brother Solomon? Brother Solomon looked up at him with his expressionless face. You lost, Sam said and closed the door behind him. Elder Snyder chastised him all the way home about opening his mouth without permission and not following his senior companion's instructions. Sam ignored his tirade. Journal entry, August 3rd, 1974. I received a transfer notice today. I'm going to be transferred to Rhodesia. It's another country north of here. Elder Schneider has been a good companion as far as teaching me diligence and work. I feel bad that we never really got any missionary work done. I think he blames me for our lack of success. He has hinted at it, but not said why. In Rhodesia, I'll be co-senior with Elder Palmer. He came out of the LTM in the group just behind mine. I'm looking forward to finally being able to get some missionary work done. I feel inspired to do it. Journal entry, August 5th, 1974. I'm on the train to Rhodesia. This is day two of a five-day trip. The train is a coal-burning puffer belly and never goes above 20 miles an hour. I am in the third car from the engine, and the cabin spends about half the time filled with coal smoke. I'm constantly coughing. The countryside is beautiful beyond description. It is rolling hills covered with low trees and brush. The colors are breathtaking. An unbelievable number of animals roam here. We have gone past many herds of deer-like animals, and I have seen lions, elephants, and a bazillion monkeys, and other animals that I had no idea existed. I have taken many pictures. The train stops at every black village it passes to let off packages and people. We usually spend about an hour at each village. We are not allowed off the train. While we are stopped, armed guards walk up and down the train to keep people from sneaking onto the train. The little kids of the village come up to the windows and sell things, such as oranges and bananas. They also sell lots of hand-carved animals and trinkets. I have bought a few because they are so cheap, but I don't have much money. The kids start out begging, and then as the train starts to warm up, they tell us that we are selfish rich and selfish. They demand that we buy something. As the train pulls away, they curse at us for not buying enough of their stuff. What an interesting sales tactic. One cute little boy picked out a lady in the car ahead of mine and was saying, Very beautiful, rich lady, please buy an orange. I'm so hungry. And the train began to move. He was saying, Hey, rich lady, why are you so selfish? I think you very mean to me, rich lady. Please, my baby sister is so hungry. Then as we were pulling away, he said, Hey, mean rich lady, why you hate me? You are too ugly to be nice. I hate you, ugly, mean, rich lady. It was funny. The kid was obviously not malnourished. He was as plump as the rich lady. <laughs> 